I'm Chris Cash. And I'm Archie Brown. And for this episode of the Talks on China podcast, we are delighted to be joined by Alessio Patalano. Alessio Patalano is a professor of war and strategy in East Asia in the Department of War Studies, King's College London, and is also director of the King's Japan program. Alessio has contributed to professional forums debating in military and strategic affairs in Australia, Japan, Korea, China, and the United States. At the time of recording, for some background context, it's now been over three weeks since US House of Representatives Speaker Nancy Pelosi set foot on Taiwan, becoming the first speaker to do so since Newt Gingrich in 1997. I think most listeners will be familiar with the, the ensuing events and tensions, so I won't go into them in too much detail. But I'd like to kick off today to, to ask what you made of Beijing's response uh, to the visit of US Speaker Pelosi, especially with respect to the, the impressive military spectacle that is, has taken place. Could you maybe sort of briefly talk us through that? Okay. Well, first of all, I'm, I'm delighted to join you on the platform today and no less to talk about what has been one of the hot topics of this summer. Certainly, you know, Beijing made it very clear as soon as the announcement was made that Pelosi would be visiting and then again when it was confirmed, Beijing made it very clear to the Biden administration that they weren't happy. And indeed, uh, they worded quite strongly that uh, the United States would bear responsibility for the consequences over the visit. Um, and in a way, one should take Beijing's words to, to, to heart. There was a clear sense that responses would, would happen and these responses would be quite strong, certainly more robust uh, than what we've seen before. However, one should also place that into a broader context. As you pointed out in uh, presenting Pelosi's visit to, to Taiwan, this is the one of the most senior figures in the American political landscape, making a visit that hasn't happened in that context um, for a very long time. So it was impossible for Beijing not to respond and not to word um, the responses that they were planning in a very strong fashion. Having said so, if one looks closely, I think that it is possible to make the case, contrary to what many observers highlighted in the United States, that considering the circumstances, the importance of the visit, the importance of the person visiting, actually Beijing's response, response was relatively constrained to what one would have expected or what they could have done, let's put it that way. And Alessio, in terms of the, the exercises that we've seen this month, would you say there were any features of the PLA's response that differentiated it from previous exercises that we've seen in the Taiwan Strait? Was it purely the, the scale of the exercises that differentiated them, or did we see some new techniques and tactics tested out? So I think that's the, the, the really important question to ask when it comes to, to Beijing's response, because yes, it was more constrained to what it could have been. And what do I mean by that? There's three preliminary observations to make when it comes to China and cross-strait ties and the use of military power in relation to Taiwan-related missions if from, from a Beijing's perspective. So the first observation, as a, as a preliminary observation, is that a Taiwan contingency scenario, if you are in the PLA, it's a core mission, which means that you have scripts, you have preparations, and above all, it is a standard feature of your exercise and training landscape. As a matter of fact, every summer, 
one of the core exercises that the PLA runs is about amphibious assaults, air uh, contestation to gain air superiority, all the various elements that would be, if you want, necessary for a major military operation across the Straits of Taiwan. Now, the last time you actually had a serious crisis in which military power was deployed by the um, government, that's the second observation, was in 95-96. And that's very helpful because based on point number one, this is a serious mission the PLA trains for, you have point number two, which is, well, we also have a template. Last time you had a crisis and Beijing decided to use military power to signal its displeasure, intention and whatnot, they actually performed a series of maneuvers. So we've got something against which we can, um, if you want, assess what happened this time compares to that last time this happened. And this leads to the third observation. When it happened last time, the PLA was a vintage collection of capabilities coming out of the less performing part of the Cold War. Today, that's not the case. So the third sort of observation is that what is happening in terms of of this muscular uh, uh, display of force is really interesting because it could give us a little bit of um, insight into how far and how much the PLA has changed. So these three points are all quite significant because when you sort of start putting these elements together and you observe what happened, there's three features that really were striking. First, this was a much larger scale, both in terms of commitment of capabilities, in terms of um, um, duration of the exercises, literally the amount of ammunition spent. Um, And so you can definitely see that that's 20 years, right, of continuous build up and development of modern capabilities. So the kit is coming around and delivering what the promise was when they started to invest into this transformation. The second remarkable feature was that there was a much greater sense of capacity for precision. It's not just the mass of stuff that was taking place, but it's also how it was employed In a way, it linked modern capabilities to an enhanced capacity for Beijing to be very specific in its political signaling. For example, the missiles that splashed inside the um, exclusive economic zones claimed by Japan, or the simple fact that they had some of the missiles very much close and some actually inside the claimed territorial waters around Taiwan. That capacity for targeting with precision implies a willingness to send specific messages um, to um, uh, uh, authorities both in Tokyo and in Taipei. By a similar token, the crossing of the median line in very specific points and repeated sort of moments and for a limited period of time allowed the, the, the Chinese authorities to be very clear about the type of challenge they could take against Taiwan. And the third thing was how they coordinated the different tools that they had at their disposal across departments of government. They coordinated in a synergic fashion the cyber activities, the use of drones to gather information and disturb and interfere with activities both in the offshore islands held by uh, the, the the Taiwanese um, or in the against uh, Japanese uh, military assets. And they coordinated all of that with a fairly complex set of maneuvers that were taking place in the air, 
Atsi, and that's what we know in terms of the open sources, but perhaps uh, unsurprisingly also, um, if one were to better understand the kind of like underwater activities, I wouldn't be surprised that that was involved the two. So these three points to me are what really sets this this, this set of maneuvers apart from anything that we've, some, we've seen before. before. The scale and, and and the sheer commitment of capabilities and the precision with which this modern military power has been used to communicate signals. Um, and three, the coordination among the different sort of um, elements and levers of power uh, that, that Beijing sort of put together. And Alessio, you mentioned this idea of a, a median line there, and I think as recently as, as this week, Reuters reported that Taiwan's defense ministry has observed four Chinese aircraft crossing this this median line of the, the Taiwan Strait. And actually speaking to, to Taiwanese friends this week, that the PLA crossing this median line seems to be um, have been one of the most sort of troublesome of, or provocative aspects of, of Beijing's response. Could you maybe just explain for listeners and what the significance of this median line is it is is it some sort of uh, official territorial demarcation or, or what are its origins right so, so i think the taiwanese authorities put it in probably the best possible way really it's it's a fact right um it's it's an, an unofficial agreed position that was established in 1955 that was on the back of the fourth taiwan strait crisis to find some sort of acknowledgement that that line separates the airspace across the straits and to keep sort of tensions under control and it's been respected until 1999 that was the first time that the chinese actually crossed it so it's not an official line because it's not possible right it, it would contradict the one china uh, policy that for a long time both taiwan and, and china held but at the same time it's been a reality and the significant metrics against which military activities would be judged in terms of uh their you know the stability across the strait relations and the more or less aggressive nature of what would happen um if one crossed that line now, I think the, the reference that your Taiwanese conducts probably made to is the fact that the median line, in some points, is much closer to Taiwanese airspace and therefore demands the scrambling of jets and, and, and defense. So tests the defenses of, of the Taiwanese military machinery much more than other parts of the medium line. So if you take the medium line, the median line as, as a sign of stability, crossing is part of the problem because you started to push the boundaries and crossing in particular places increases that level of tension. Also, it makes it very complicated for the defending sides to understand the extent to which that is just a political signaling or indeed a rehearsal for something more. And probably these bits of both. So in terms of these provocations from China, um, how have both Taiwan and the US responded to these maneuvers? And do you think they were generally prepared for Beijing's heavy-handed military action, or did it take them by surprise? Everybody knows that this is a core mission for the PLA, that, that something will happen and will have certain characteristics and features. I don't think that's a surprise. And nobody was really taken by surprise. And, and also, I would suggest that it is very important, and as we move forward, particularly in the UK, we try to understand the American debate um, over cross-strait relations, and, and in particular, the military tensions. It will become increasingly more important for us to have a more in-depth understanding of how far into the level of crisis we are today. 
a very important sort of UK specific point moving forward for me is we really need to get much sort of sharper attention to the different stakeholders in the United States, their reactions, and what are they shaping their reactions upon for us to gain a better understanding of where the crisis is. And by the way, that that is certainly true for the US, but I think it's also true uh, in terms of our capacity to observe um, actors in the region that are close partners of the UK and are directly exposed to these tensions. For example, we're talking now here about the United States and Taiwan, but also Japanese reactions to the crisis, really important. How the different sort of stakeholders in these key regional players are reacting to specific instances will help us form a better picture of where the actual situation is at the moment. But so specifically on the United States and Taiwan, I think the United States um, reaction was in some respects very composed, and and try really to observe without engaging, as it were, or to engage with what the Chinese are doing without actually uh, inviting escalation or further response. It did feel like the, the Biden administration didn't want to have a crisis even if the Chinese were itching for one. And what is interesting to me, how can the federal government, particularly the administration, affect on the Speaker of the House, which is an independent body within the, the political landscape, in what ways they can send a signal to the Chinese, right, that they acknowledge that she's taking that step, but the administration is very careful. Well, the only way they could do it was the plane that is flying Pelosi, which is the US Air Force, therefore sort of response to Commander-in-Chief, and the plane took the most leisurely route to go to Taiwan that it possibly could, right? It stay away from the South China Sea. And if you're looking at the map, and I'm pretty sure that pretty, you know, pretty much everybody in the PLA that was tasked with this was observing that very attentively, they probably noticed that the Americans were very careful in the way they operated around the visit. So that to me invites sort of the, the thought that that, that the, the Biden administration wanted to pay close attention, but again, not inviting further escalation. The Taiwanese position, I think, was and was not too dissimilar to the Japanese position in this. So the strategy was, on the one hand, to release very specific information, very detailed information for as much as it was possible. And it was combined with statements that highlighted why that was a threat to Taiwan, but it was also a threat to the stability of the international order, whether it is freedom of navigation, whether it is the stability of air spaces. You could say that they were quite successful because even in the UK, Foreign Secretary Liz Truss's response to this was to, to emphasize how you know escalatory Chinese behavior was and destabilizing to regional stability it was. When, when I've been, I guess, doom scrolling through Twitter over the past couple of weeks, um, I've heard certain commentators sort of submit that these Chinese military drills and encroachments across the, the median line, as you've discussed, are the new normal. Um, and I was wondering if I could get your thoughts on whether this increased military assertiveness does represent a sort of new normal in, in Beijing's operational approach to the, the Taiwan Strait, or do you think we can go back to the sort of uneasy yet less hostile status quo that existed uh, prior to Pelosi's visit? So there's two points to make here. One is the distinction between new normal versus normalization. 
And I'll come back to this point in a minute. But let's focus with the point implicit in your um, question. Chinese strategy in most, if not all, of its uh, contested outstanding territorial issues is based on tactical opportunism. If circumstances present themselves and the Chinese can claim a narrative in which like, oh, we're the poor sort of on the on the defending side of a bunch of people that are ganging up against us, look at them, how bad they are, they'll take advantage of it. Out of question. They've done literally on any one of the outstanding sort of uh, uh, boundary delimitation disputes or sovereignty disputes that they had with other neighboring countries. So the fact that the Pelosi uh, trip was taking place provided the absolutely ideal context to push the envelope of that opportunistic space. So is what happened a new normal? Of course it is, without a doubt. But how long will it last? Or is this now the standard operating expectation at our end will happen? Not necessarily, because the Chinese are also very good at dialing up and down the type of activities, depending on how the situation goes. This leads to my second point, the distinction between new normal and normalization. The fact that the Chinese have an opportunistic approach to this type of situation and will try to definitely take advantage of it, it doesn't mean that everybody else should accept this as a normalizing element of the relationship between Taiwan and China. Which goes back to the point I was making about the strategy that the Taiwanese and and Japanese authorities had to emphasize the broader problem, precisely to invite the international community to maintain a firm position about we don't consider this, you know, we're not we're not happy that you're trying to normalize this new this type of behavior and make this the new normal of the relationship, right? And um, so in this respect, I think that the question you ask is, is is very important because we need to be prepared that moving forward, the level of military interaction and tension may very well remain high, may very well grow stronger. This time around, they didn't conduct an amphibious exercise as part of the the biggest sort of maneuvers. So there are still options on the table and they will continue to try to push that envelope. Does that mean that one should accept it as as a new normal? No, it doesn't do because otherwise you normalize that behavior and you have already pushed the boundary of stability in a much more dangerous space. So Alessio, you've discussed how Beijing is attempting to normalize this sort of um, provocative military behavior. Do you think that these maneuvers are attempting to to signal anything about its intentions for a potential assault on Taiwan? And building off that, is is war the inevitable outcome of this path to normalize provocative military behavior? And finally, um, with the US and China increasingly talking past each other, where does this really leave us regarding the future of the Taiwan Strait? And sorry, I know I've kind of thrown three relatively big questions at you all at once there. So these are three very important questions. So let me start with with the simplest question, right, of the three, which is, is war inevitable? War is never inevitable in in a sense. Uh, But of course, escalation is moving on a trajectory. And now we move the one step up. And and as I was suggesting earlier, I do think that uh, there is an inherent risk into seeking to normalize a greater level of tolerance of of military uh, assertiveness, if you want, for the purpose of coercion. 
because that reduces uh, the, the 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 time reaction. It reduces the um, in terms of, of defense responses. It creates more opportunity for um, unintended consequences and so on and so forth. Right. So um, we're not in a safe space. We're not at war yet, but certainly certainly we're not in a safe space. And and the closer Chinese military activities, when it comes to Taiwan in particular, the closer these activities get to Taiwanese airspaces and, and territorial waters, obviously, the more problematic it gets because it, it demands responses by Taiwan. And that is just in the military space. But the, 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 the biggest sort of issue here is that with every step that the Chinese take in that war of aggression from a psychological point of view, to ensure that the Taiwanese get the memo that this is inevitable and they're going home by 2049, so the narrative goes, the less the Taiwanese are interested in their project. The National University of Chengji and in Taiwan, which has run for the longest period of time, this is a survey and method Technologically speaking, it's a very well-designed survey. It's a very trustworthy survey about public perceptions in, in, in Taiwan, about their sense of identity and the relationship across the strait and so on and so forth. You know, at the moment, uh, the latest iteration of the survey uh, gives a Taiwanese perception of being Taiwanese at the highest level ever and perception of being also Chinese at 2%. Which really is a remarkable point because it means that at the least Taiwanese aren't interested in the China project in the way in which Xi Jinping has been sort of crafting the narrative around it. That's not helpful because it invites, in a democratic context like Taiwan, a political agenda that favors greater distance from China in how you define your a political platform. So President Tsai, for example, has been extremely successful. And the Taiwanese government, um, as soon as the new white paper, this document that China puts out explaining its position on cross-strait relation, as soon as this came out, shortly after the um, exercises uh, were concluded, the, the latest version of it, Taiwanese authorities responded to it quite sort of quickly and say like, no, we don't accept the one China principle. We don't. Period. This is something that we're not interested in. And it builds upon Tsai's long-standing uh, policy platform, upon which she campaigned for re-election, and she won in 2020 with a landslide victory, that she was happy to talk to Chinese on a sort of equal terms basis between the two sides, right? So the military exercises, have, if you want, have, have an immediate effect. Uh, in terms of what the political signaling that they're trying to achieve in terms of sending a message to Washington of keeping out of things, telling the Taiwanese that there's no way to go other than back home in 2049. But then there's the biggest sort of effect and the cumulative effect of all this um, sort of coercive form of actions, which is about eroding a sense of connection across the strait, which weakens and in the, in the longer term, kind of like it doesn't make war inevitable, but certainly increases the prospect of, on one side, Beijing feeling like they need to do something about, and on the other, the Taiwanese feeling like, well, we really don't like these guys, and we're going to do something about it, right? So in that sense, it's not inevitable, but every step he's been taken makes the inevitability more complicated, and therefore, the potential and possibility of war ever so most likely to, to be probable, right? So, so that's the, the, the question, to, the answer to the bigger question. Now, the extent to which the other two points that, that you were raising, you know, what is the, um, the, the end goal? 
and how likely war is. One of the interesting sort of starting points for our conversation should be how the timeline over potential aggression across the strait, and I will define this in a minute, um, in the United States has changed. When Admiral Davidson, the former uh, commander of, of Indo-Pacific Command, before he retired in his last sort of um, oral evidence that he, he gave to Congress, um, he presented a, what's known the Davidson window. So the idea that the Indo-PACOM was looking at what China was doing, and insofar as Taiwan is concerned, their understanding was that there is a, a great sense of danger down to 2027 for military action to take place. Now, that original estimate of six years, over the last couple of months, um, unnamed sources from within DOD started to talk to journalists and raising the question that it's been sort of shortened to 18 months. And this could be related to a number of different sort of metrics, you know, internal dynamics in China, the impact that COVID is having on the Chinese economy, uh, sort of Xi Jinping's own position within the party and sort of ambition for his own narrative of rejuvenation at the place that Taiwan has in it, etc. Etc. So when it comes to the likelihood, it depends who you're listening to. Certainly, it's remarkable as a takeaway that in the United States, there was a, a belief that military action is not to be ruled out and a real danger exists within six months. And now that has been shortened to a year and a half. The extent to which you know we want to believe or buy into that, it's, it's part of, of our debate. But we've got that point of reference, right? Now, within that context, um, what do we mean, though? by aggressive action. I don't think that the outright assault on Taiwan is something that is highly likely or probable, certainly within the sort of 18 months period of time. But at the same time, I do think that what the exercises have indicated, the Chinese are becoming less and less shy to use higher level of military power. And I think they feel a sense of growing confidence about the use of their military power in taking more assertive steps. And that goes, you know, you have to understand that, that short on an assault on the big islands, you got offshore islands, you got you got Kinmen, Pengu, um, you've got Pratas Islands, which are actually quite close to Beijing. So even logistically, they're much less complicated uh, to take on. And um, and you have also activities such as extended exercises that would de facto put uh, some sort of a quarantine stroke blockade of the main traffic arteries in and out to Taiwan. So you have different layers of military options available to Beijing, which would be very aggressive, very hostile. There would be a use of force uh, in international legal sense, but at the same time, they're not an assault on, on, on the big island, if you want. And they do raise a much greater and more challenging question for everybody else on how to respond. Put it this way, is anyone in Washington DC ready and willing to risk World War III to salvage Pratas Islands from a Chinese hostile overtaking? That's a big question. It's an important question. And I think by focusing too much on war over Taiwan, we forget that there are layers of military options available that are equally problematic. And indeed, going back, uh, uh, um, Archie, to your third question, you know, what is the long-term signaling of this? Speak to that agenda. From a Beijing perspective, if peaceful reunification is a possible option, we go for that, right? How you get there 
if it involves a degree of military force that convinced the Taiwanese that there's no other way to go, hey, why not? So the real risk that we are facing, I think, in the medium short period of time, uh, from my perspective, is almost the opposite of what's been talked about. I'm not worried about the invasion of Taiwan because I don't think that is the most likely scenario that we're looking at. What I'm really worried about is a much greater use of military force and smaller targets that are much more within the grasp of Beijing and much more aligned with Beijing's current policy of a peaceful reunification first that is driven at the moment by that sort of striking fear at the heart of the Taiwanese people and inevitability both to them and to anybody else that wants to do something about it, including the United States. That, I think, Archie, is what brings together the three questions that you raised. And in a way, sort of like, even though I'm very, I'm an optimistic person by nature, kind of leave, a, leave us with a bit of a gloomy note if you, if you want. <laughs> no, I, I think we do tend to, we fall into the trap of um, thinking these things in sort of zero term, sum terms. And there, there are sort of um, grades of, of China expanding its, its sort of military presence and aggression, right? And that salami slicing element and also blockades and, you know, continuing to pursue this winning without fighting um, strategy are, are really important uh, sort of middle stages to consider, I guess. And, and just to round off, um, Alessio, from a sort of UK perspective, obviously we're a UK parliamentary group, so we should sort of zero in a, a little bit on the, the UK. And, and you've talked throughout the podcast on understanding that the various forces and, and stakeholders that are dictating the actions of uh, and outcomes in the Taiwan Strait at the moment. But one of the questions we often get asked is, is what the UK can actually sort of do for Taiwan. Obviously, we don't have the same military capabilities or interests and commitments to Taiwan as um, as the US does. So, so what sort of role could us and the rest of the international community, I'm thinking about Europe to play in supporting Taiwan and also helping to avoid escalation to this conflict? So um, I think you're absolutely right um, in, in the way you, you present the question, um, in the sense that the fact that, you know, what I capability, what is the capability, or, or we focus too much, or because we do not have the material hard capabilities, then there's nothing we can do about it. And I think that's the wrong way to think about it. As the war in Ukraine has sort of shown, there are more and different contributions that countries can make, particularly a country like the United Kingdom uh, that still retain important memberships, whether it is the UN Security Council, whether it is NATO, whether it is um, very strong and close ties with the United States, with the Five Eyes, um, and in the proximity of Taiwan with, with Japan and certainly growingly with, with, with South Korea. So one needs, I think you are absolutely right that whenever someone asks the question, you need sort of like quickly have them stepping back and thinking, this isn't just about the number of guns we can send that part of the world, because it isn't about that. Or it could be also about that, but it should come as the secondary element of the answer in which the first question is, do we have as UK sort of system, a genuine relationship with our closest partners in the region that would be directly affected? And these are declared partners. I mean, I'm, I'm not revealing uh, you know, any, any state secret. The integrated review um, sort of places the United States, um, Japan as top sort of one is an ally, the other one is the closest uh, security and defense partner in, in the region, right? So these are stated spaces. Now, do we have the relationship with these actors? 
that would enable the UK to inform a contribution to any type of contingency scenario around Taiwan? That's the first important question. And at the end of that question, have we done a, a, a check-in in the UK system that we have the ideal and most suitable relationship that we want to have with Taiwanese counterparts, where the different stakeholders, I'm not talking about formal relations, I'm talking even in the realm of informal relationship, do we have contacts within the Ministry of Defense in Taiwan? Do we have conducts within the Taiwanese parliamentary space? Do we have the type of relationship and forms of communication with all the different stakeholders that are sufficient and suitable for the UK to be able to provide a sensible answer when questions are asked? So I think the answer to your question is, is, is at a very fundamental level about we now know that there is a crisis that is an tensions that are unfolding. We know these tensions are unlikely to go away. Have we done a little bit of an internal check as to what we have available? What are our tools of communication to engage, to understand what we should have available, right? And what is the roadmap to, to, to get there? And, and Parliament has been very important in starting to shape through inquiries how to get to that stage. So we know a lot more about the relationship between the UK and Taiwan because of the parliamentary inquiries over um, UK-Taiwan ties. And in that sense, I think that's that's a very important role that should be continued to be highlighted. On top of that, the point I was making earlier about the strategy of naming and shaming, as it were, being very clear about what the Chinese are doing, informing in a broader sense what is happening, and certainly taking position about why that should not be normalized or acceptable. That's definitely a very important first step. And the second thing within this, this within this context, I think is definitely important. And oddly enough, COVID has shown, particularly with the moving of a lot of journalists, media presence from Beijing to Taipei, that even to understand China, Taipei is an important place. And so how to increase the depth of exchanges and interaction with, uh, for example, the Taiwanese um, military um, to better assess what is happening, to better have a, our own understanding of it. I think these are the sort of first steps that are really sort of necessary in addressing the specific dynamics of the crisis. That being said, this is never going to be solved just as a, as a, as a sort of a, a military confrontation. The broader agenda needs to be to keep Taiwan very much ingrained into the international horizon in terms of global prosperity. So, for example, current trends of developing offshore um, wind farms with Taiwan, something that is very much or the climate agenda. These are ways in which the UK can definitely have a role in keeping the current tensions uh, potentially and possibly under sort of a, a more controlled space. I think those points about the need for non-military engagement to to increase the debt of inter interaction and understanding between the UK and Taiwan are, are key and something that, that we at the CRG have um, continued to, to work on um, and promote. So you can find Alessio on Twitter at Alessio Naval, where he is often tweeting on all things East Asian maritime security. We'll include a link to his handle in the podcast notes. Alessio, thank you very much for joining us on the Talks on China podcast today. Mm -hmm.